Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Proudly Canadian and making Canada proud. This is the Roy Green Show. Emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Now, let's talk to uh, Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor and uh, senior policy advisor to a federal minister for public safety, executive director of the Canadian Police Association. And there are two criminal criminal law cases that are in the news, and they deserve some attention. And uh, the first one, hey, Scott, thanks for taking the time. Uh, the first one uh, is an alleged murderer accused of gunning down an innocent man, and the alleged murderer was on statutory release for a shooting and drug offenses that he'd been involved in in Edmonton. What's the story here? Well, the uh, media this week, actually, Joe Warmington at The Sun, um, uh, broke the, uh, the story and gave the details of this guy's background. As you know, there's only a, there's usually sort of a window that you can do that. Once the case gets into the system, you're not allowed to report the truth about an offender's uh, criminal background because it's believed that it might prejudice their right to a fair trial. But uh, Joe reported that this guy, as is often the case when you get this kind of a uh, killing, this is just like a random shooting, um, this is somebody uh, that has a criminal history that is uh, of interest because he was, as you say, convicted of this, this shooting offense, a uh, uh, drug-related uh, shooting offense out in Edmonton a couple of years ago and was sentenced. And that's where our uh, parole system took over. And we now know that, in fact, that the guy was actually released on statutory release in uh, January 2017. Now, statutory release is the uh, mandatory, supposedly mandatory, that's the way it's always reported. Uh, after two-thirds of the sentence, you're entitled there's a presumptive entitlement to early release. It is often reported as though it is um, uh, obligatory, in other words, that you're entitled to it. That is not true. The Corrections and Conditional Release Act in Section 129 makes it clear that the parole board can decide that, you know what, you're a risk to commit a uh, serious offense, so we're not going to let you go. It's called detention, and we can keep you for your full sentence. And now we've got these preventive reconnaissances, which were developed out of a case, an inquest, when that took a look into a guy named Joe Fredericks. I know you know that case as well. I do very well. Where we got the details of how the system had failed. And that's what's important about this, in my opinion, is that there are beginning to be calls for, you know, why was this guy released? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he was released originally in uh, January 2017, and he was brought back in within a couple of weeks because he'd been violating the conditions. 
and then he was released again, and he was brought back in because he was released uh, because he was violating the conditions, and then he was released again. And the actual, sorry, on the on the the uh, second release, it was actually because he had some outstanding charges, and then he was released again, and he violated the conditions, and then literally a couple of weeks before this latest uh, shooting in um, uh, February of 2018, he was released again, and less than four weeks later, he is uh, now charged with shooting uh, this individual and killing him. And so people are legitimately raising questions, should this guy have been on the streets? Should he have been on the streets? Well, the answer to that is fairly simple for the average person. And the person, the man who was killed, Namdi Ongba, was uh, innocent. He was not totally. involved in any criminal activities. He was a, just a, an unfortunate bystander. Yeah, and I mean, this is something, these kinds of cases, and I mentioned the Joe Fredericks case, that was the guy that was a career uh, pedophile, and he abducted, he was released early on conditions, and he um, abducted, raped, and murdered a little 12-year-old boy named Christopher Stevenson. And after that, uh, there was an inquest that was held into it that for the first time really looked at the systemic dysfunction, and from that came a number of systemic changes. That's where the sex offender registry came. It's ultimately where these preventive reconnaissances came from, from the uh, long-term sexual offender orders, all measures where we looked at essentially what was a systemic failure. And my point is that I think this is likely going to be that kind of a case where we will need to do a systemic review. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it'll have to, it has to wait until after the criminal charges are completed, and who knows how long that's going to take. But you can often get very, very good systemic insights here as to how a system has failed, whether it's just in individual circumstances or whether it's in the uh, the laws and the procedures and what changes can be made. So you know what? It doesn't happen again. You know, talking about the Christopher Stevenson case, I just want to remind our listeners that this was a 12-year-old boy who was abducted and kept for a weekend and tortured and abused by a sadomasochistic pedophile. And, the, and a, a psychiatrist or psychologist who testified in the trial, in an earlier trial of Joseph Fredericks, had said he enjoyed torturing children more than he enjoyed killing them. And uh, yet they let him go. They let him out on parole. He was not being supervised because his parole officer was later in the inquest to admit he didn't know what a psychopath was. Yeah, and they also, right? remember, they lost him. They lost, and what, and what I remember specifically about this was Christopher C. Stevenson's dad was in the studio yeah. with their lawyer, Tim Danson, and we were talking about the case and, and very energetically, and the next day, or later that day, I got a call from Doug Lewis's press secretary. Doug Lewis was at the yeah. time the attorney general slash justice minister, and they did not want to pay for the legal expenses of the Stevenson family during the inquest, the federal government said, no, 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 our lawyers can represent both the family and us. And so, because I disagreed vehemently, Mr. Lewis came into this studio, sat down and tried to persuade us that he was correct. Well, our listeners chewed him up and spit him out. And to his eternal credit, his press secretary called me that night and said, you know, when we left, he said, the minister said, I just got it handed to me, didn't I? And I deserved it. Have my lawyers waiting for me when I get to Ottawa. He called and he said, the minister wants to get back on your show tomorrow and announce that we will pay the legal expenses for the yeah. Stevenson family. So yeah. my hat's off to Doug Lewis yeah, Doug for having a seen job. a better way to do it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's that, it, 
that's the point is you don't want to have essentially systemic self-interest where everybody looks the other way. Now, you can't have one group of lawyers who represent the federal government then also represent the family of the victim, of the child victim, because the government lawyers are going to look after the government. I don't care what people say. That's going to be their main objective. Well, um, you know, it's uh, checks and balances, what it's described, and the thing that it reminds me of so frequently, and it's something that, uh, you know, since we've been uh, having these conversations, uh, our justice system is a public system. It's not the public preserve of uh, lawyers and judges and uh, bureaucrats and criminals. It belongs to the people. And I think in many ways, you know, over the last number of decades, uh, we have uh, seen some of it sort of drift away. But it's our system, and we can take it back. There have been some positive measures, I think, in the last decade. Uh, But having these kinds, when you have a case like this, and you have, you know, circumstances like this, that for any person, you don't have to know all the conditions of the, or the sections of the Correction and Conditional Release Act. What the hell was this guy doing on the street? Somebody needs to answer that question. And quickly. Well, as quickly as they can after the court issues have been taken care of. Now, uh, talk to us about what's going on in, in Alberta with the police watchdog not releasing the identity of yeah. a gunman who opened fire on Calgary police last month. Well, you know, in some ways it's a similar issue because... Uh, it's, in effect, the, uh, the bureaucrats within a system deciding that they know best and the public doesn't need to know the truth. This was a uh, case that uh, uh, got a fair amount of attention. It was uh, somebody. We don't know the details. But, again, like the guy that we were uh, just uh, talking about, um, Abdullahi Mohammed, who was the, uh, the one that's now charged with first-degree murder, frequently people who engage in this kind con- it's very rare that they're first offenders let me put it that way in my exper- you know 30 plus year experience and this is a guy who was involved in some uh, car hijacking and some some break and enters and the cops got called to it and they're chasing him around and he ultimately ends up in a garage and he actually shoots a police officer fortunately uh, doesn't uh, the officer was injured but not killed and uh, he, uh, the garage itself caught fire. It's not been released yet exactly how that was put out, whether he caused that himself. Uh, but after the fire was put out, that the uh, suspect was found dead. And because there was a shooting involving the police, the uh, Alberta, I believe it's the Alberta uh, Security Incident, Seri- Alberta Serious Incident Response Team, mm-hmm. which is like an oversight body of the police, Believe it or not, after a police officer is shot, they come in and investigate the police. Uh, you know, does this review of everything, and they've got the details, and uh, they are refusing to release the name of the guy that shot the that was committing all these crimes, and uh, shot the police, shot the police officer. And the president of the um, uh, police association, Les Kaminsky, is saying, you know what, what are you what are you doing? Like the public has a right to know about this stuff. Who is this guy? Maybe he was a repeat offender. Why was he on the streets? Why I would argue the public, the, public ha- the public has a need to know, not just a right. Well, you know, uh, I, I'd look at it even in a longer term of things. Yes, I agree that there may... I mean, it could be that it's not relevant to anything, but the fact that you've got what are, in effect, bureaucrats pursuing... And, I mean, I, I gather that the, uh, the rationale they're providing is that the releasing the information, you know, might be emotionally traumatic for the uh, the criminal's family. Yeah, didn't they also say that they have the right to do this because there'd been a five-province agreement of similar boards, similar groups, and they'd all agreed this was the way that they would yeah, move forward? I must admit, however, uh, one of the things, and I, I don't know the specifics of the, uh, of the provincial legislation, but I can tell you in federal legislation, 
with respect to what would be deemed to be personal information, like an individual's name, in the federal legislation and policy geek and lacking that I am and lacking a social life, I know this. Section, my favorite section of the Act, Section 8, Subsection 2, Subsection M, says that if the holder of the information, okay, concludes that the public interest in releasing the truth outweigh the person, the individual's um, personal interest in concealing it, then that individual can release the, uh, the information. I don't know if that specific section exists in the Alberta legislation, but I'll bet you it does. They're all very, very similar pieces of legislation. It means that somebody is exercising their discretion and making a decision not to tell the public the truth. So here's the question that needs to be asked. Why are these two stories that seem to be so self-explanatory and don't seem to require the input of the justice system to the extent that's going to be necessary, why, is it, why, is, why are these things happening? Welcome to Canada. Well, maybe that's it. I mean, it's the institutional self-interest that I think is yeah. the kind of thing that uh, needs to be yeah. exposed. And that's why having things like inquests or inquiries into activities or having you know, police associations stepping up and asking the questions, those are all the kinds of things that I, I think are helpful in so- restoring the appropriate balance in our right. justice system. Mr. Newark, thanks for the time. Always. Right, thanks, Scott. Later. Scott Newark. You know, on the, uh, on the story of uh, Christopher Stevenson, the 12-year-old boy who was murdered by Joseph Fredericks, in Fredericks' last trial, a psychiatrist or psychologist who spoke about him being a homicidal pedophile said he should never be released without the psychologist being contacted and asked. So the parole board called his office, the psychiatrist's office or the psychologist's office, spoke to his assistant because the psychologist was on vacation and, uh, and said, well, we did our job. We did what we were supposed to do. We called the psychologist's office. Not our fault. He wasn't there. And they green-lighted the release of, Christopher, of, uh, of Joseph Fredericks, and the 12-year-old boy Christopher Stevenson died.